Chigoe, an Onoe podcast series focusing on current matters in the Mi'kmaq community. We, Akjalasi, in Deloisi Shandok. Hello and welcome. My name is Shandok. I'm a proud member of the Lennox Island First Nation and communications officer with Onoe. This is Chigoe. I'm your host, and today I am once again joined by my colleague and senior negotiator with Onoe, Tracy Cutcliffe. Thanks for joining me again today, Tracy. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be back. In our last episode, Tracy explained some of the history behind the Treaty Protective Fisheries and how things got to where they are today. In this episode, we'll hear about priority of access to the fisheries and how the Epiquit Mi'kmaq are planning to exercise their treaty protected rights. And so, yeah, let's get into it. What is a treaty protected fishery? It's also been referred to as moderate livelihood. Uh, some are probably more familiar with that term. So what the Marshall decision affirmed, and we've already talked about this, is it affirmed that the treaty right did exist for the Mi'kmaq to be able to you know, sell, trade, and, and barter fish um, and uh, resources, other resources, wildlife, in order to support uh, the gathering of the necessities that you need to support yourself and your family. And the Supreme Court described that as supporting a moderate livelihood. They didn't attach a definition to that. And in my opinion, I think people focus a little too much attention on trying to come up with a definition for that. I think it's more about ensuring that you're correcting the, the past wrongs and, and allowing the Mi'kmaq to exercise that right. Um, so when we talk about the Treaty Protective Fishery, it's essentially the right that was, uh, thanks to Donald Marshall Jr., uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada and is protected by the Constitution of Canada under Section 35 of the Constitution. Um, so that's that Treaty Protected Fishery, one of the things that like I think we found quite useful in trying to help people understand where the, the Mi'kmaq right exists if you look at it on a priority of access type analysis, then you've got a priority of access to that resource that starts with um, Mi'kmaq access to the fishery for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. So if conservation and sustainability of the resource is first respected, and there, it's very difficult for anybody to argue against the commitment of the Mi'kmaq with respect to sustainability of the resource. That is like a fundamental principle of everything that the, the Mi'kmaq do. So that is a given. But once you get past that, the first priority of access is to that Aboriginal right to fish for food or social or ceremonial purposes. Um, that would have been affirmed under a decision called the Sparrow decision, but that would be at the top of the ladder, shall we say, for yeah. priority of access. And then following that is the treaty protected fishery, and that's the fishery that was affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada in Marshall. And what that allows for is for the Mi'kmaq to be able to access the fishery based on their treaty right, the treaty right um, that is articulated in the 1760-61 treaties, and that allows for the Mi'kmaq to sell, trade, and barter in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. So that's kind of number two on the ladder. Mm -hmm. But then if you go down past that, so if there are still uh, resources that will not be impacted by conservation concerns, it's a healthy resource, then you move on to 
what we like to describe as the privilege-based fisheries. So the commercial fishery, the commercial fishery that's regulated now by Canada through the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, that is a privilege-based fishery. You get access to that fishery based on ministerial regulatory authority. You are issued a license in accordance with that regulatory authority. But that's not something that's based on a right. It's not based on a uh, treaty right. It's not based on an uh, Aboriginal right. It's not based on any kind of constitutionally protected right. It's a privileged-based fishery. It's important. Don't, you know, that is not something that can be disputed. It's hugely important. It's important to everybody who fishes in that fisheries. It's important to the the community, the culture, and the economy. But from a legal perspective, it is a privilege-based fishery. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's important to say on that fishery is that it isn't just non-Indigenous fishermen that are fishing under the privilege-based commercial fishery. The uh, Mi'kmaq First Nations in PEI and across the region have very strong, healthy, robust commercial fisheries that they fish in accordance with the same rules and regulations as other non-Indigenous fishermen. So that's kind of important to recognize, too. So when you get to that commercial-based fishery, um, it's not just the non-Indigenous fishermen that are impacted by that. It's also the current commercial um, Mi'kmaq fisheries in this region. And then kind of following that would be the access to a fishery based for um, you know, recreational purposes or such. So if I kind of put it in reverse, it would be you know, if in fact there are, for instance, conservation concerns or sustainability of the resource, the first fishery that would need to be impacted by that and limited by that would be the recreational fishery. The next fishery that should be impacted would be the commercial fishery. So if there are genuine concerns with regard to the sustainability of the fishery, the next fishery that gets impacted or limited is the commercial fishery. And again, it's important to recognize that's not just the non-Indigenous fishermen who would be impacted by that. It would be both them and the commercial Mi'kmaq fisheries. But then if there is any continuing concern with respect to, and I'm using you know, conservation and sustainability of the resource, because it's obviously the most important key factor, then the treaty-protected fishery would be impacted. Mm -hmm. But that's not before the commercial fishery. (laughs) And then finally, you know, if in fact there were serious significant concerns, the last fishery that would be impacted and limited um, in any kind of justifiable way would be the aboriginal right to food, social, and ceremonial fishery. That's prioritized. That's prioritized. And so can individuals, you know, Mi'kmaq, indigenous individuals, can they take part in different in these different fisheries at the same time? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. And yes, absolutely. They do they do now. So you've got um, with the exception of, although it's happening in Nova Scotia, the plans are underway here in PEI. So um, right now, in if I'm focusing on Ebiguit, on PEI, there are Mi'kmaq individuals who are fishing, um, I'm quite confident would be fishing um, in the recreational fishery for, for pleasure. There are Mi'kmaq fishermen that are absolutely fishing in accordance with the commercial fishery. And those are 
band-run fisheries with each um, First Nation, but there are many individuals that are fishing in accordance with the, the commercial regulated fishery. Um, there are uh, individuals in PEI who fish for food, social, and ceremonial purposes, so they're accessing that right. Mm -hmm. The one piece of the puzzle, which hasn't happened yet in PEI, but everybody saw um, it begin to happen in the fall of 2020 in Nova Scotia, is individuals exercising and actively participating in a treaty-protected self-regulated fishery. That isn't happening now, but there is a commitment um, with both First Nations councils and leadership to begin that work towards um, a, a self-regulated treaty-protected fishery. Up to this point, has research indicated any conservation concerns? And if there are, how would that be handled? I think that it's also really important for um, the message to be delivered and hopefully heard <laughs> that regulation doesn't necessarily uh, equate to conservation. Conservation is, um, it, it should be a science-based decision with respect to um, sustainability of the resource. It should also be, from the Mi'kmaq perspective, the Mi'kmaq um, priorities and principles with respect to conservation. And, uh, you know, I would argue from as someone who's privileged to serve and work for the Mi'kmaq, that the Mi'kmaq have uh, higher and more stringent concerns with respect to the sustainability of the resource. But that doesn't necessarily equate to regulation. So science has to be considered. Mi'kmaq principles and laws with respect to sustainability of the resource need to be considered. And you cannot equate that with regulation. So that whether there are conservation concerns should be uh, something that will e come out through the planning with respect to any of the fisheries. And in fact, if there genuinely are conservation concerns, then as we discussed earlier, the first thing that gets impacted is the commercial fishery. Right. So if there are conservation concerns, the commercial fishery would necessarily need to be limited. And if there were continuing conservation concerns, then you would move to a limitation on the treaty protected fishery. But people need to understand that if they're saying there are conservation concerns, those concerns need to be addressed first by the recreational and the commercial fishery. Why implement the treaty protective fishery this year? Why is this the time to do it, do you think? I'm certainly not in a position to speak for the communities or the leadership, but I feel comfortable in reiterating kind of public positions that the chiefs have made and the commitments that they've already made with respect to the treaty protected fishery. But, you know, I like to describe it in you know, my terms as it's a bit of the horses out of the barn for good reason. It was a very long period of time for the Mi'kmaq to be waiting for genuine negotiations towards the implementation of the right. I think those frustrations have built to a, to a degree that both individuals and communities were no longer willing to wait for the federal government to secure the regulatory space <laughs> that would allow for the implementation of the self-regulated fishery. So they, as is their right, they began to implement the fishery. 
uh, the treaty protected fishery right. starting in Nova Scotia and you know the First Nations leadership here have have certainly made the supportive um, uh, statements with respect to what was happening in Nova Scotia and have recognized that it is a very similar situation here in PEI. There's been an abundance of patience by the Mi'kmaq and the Mi'kmaq leadership and they have, I think, now made the commitment to start making the responsible plans to implement the self-regulated fishery because they're no longer willing to wait for Canada to come to the table to uh, do something that would be, we'll say, in a, a joint fashion. There's still an expectation that Canada is going to make space within the regulations so that the they're in, in regulation as well as in law that the Supreme Court of Canada already identified and affirmed, but that in regulation they are making the space for what is legally correct, and that is the treaty-protected fishery. For the treaty-protected fishery, I imagine that there's kind of draft management plans that they're working on right now. Do you know how these are being developed? I can speak to that to a degree. There are They are being driven, of course, by the First Nations leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, the, the First Nations chiefs have committed to a process that is going to consider all the relevant information from science, uh, genuine science information, to um, uh, commitments uh, that the federal government has made or the existing regulatory regime. They are considering the um, concerns and interests of uh, the broader uh, non-Indigenous fishery, and they're obviously considering the concerns and interests and the feedback from their communities. So there will be community engagement um, that will be happening over the the next weeks and months. And taking all of those factors into consideration, the chiefs and councils will then be developing management plans that are ultimately respectful of conservation and the sustainability of the resource, um, but allows for an introduction to a self-regulated fishery. And... Um, the First Nations leadership, I think, have been very clear that this this is not the end of the uh, issue. It's a it's an introduction because they have um, already stated that you know there are many factors that need to be um, considered and it, it monitoring and enforcement and how all of those kind of components of the self regulated fishery will work. So there's a great deal of work to be done. But uh, for immediate purposes, the uh, First Nations councils have committed to doing the planning, um, which is going to be very much guided by community engagement and input that will get them to a place where they have a management plan that will then um, allow them to introduce the Treaty Protected Fishery in PEI. And so will the fishery, the Treaty Protected Fishery, will that take place during the commercial fishing season? And if not, why? Um, that's one that I can't answer. So I, what will come out of the process that the First Nations are engaged in now will be management plans that um, define how the self-regulated fishery will happen and when it will happen and to what degree it will happen, what the scope is, that will come from that management planning process. Um, The one thing that I 
can say, and I think it's really important to say, is that the, um, again, the councils, the communities, the Mi'kmaq are absolutely committed to first and foremost sustainability, the resource and conservation. So that is a non-starter. Whether that means that um, fishing should or will happen within the DFO regulated seasons is yet to be determined because as we discussed earlier, regulation and the rules that are defined by regulation doesn't necessarily reflect conservation. That has to be determined. So it, you cannot accept that um, fishing within the current regulated seasons is something that is a reflection of conservation. That will have to be determined. How will we know if what is put in place will eventually cause harm to the stocks? I'm, I'm sure there's plans to kind of monitor all that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and again, um, again I think it's that's a really good question to repeat the message that if there are conservation concerns with respect to the stock, you start with the recreational and the commercial fishery as the place where you begin to impose limits to protect those stocks. But with respect to the treaty protected fishery, the commitments are completely solid and the uh, Mi'kmaq have confirmed, committed. It's not something that can be questioned that conservation and sustainability is at the top of all of the lists. But to your point in your question, um, the First Nations here are beginning to do the analysis and um, will be looking to um, look for resources and supports to ensure that they've got the monitoring capacity so that the they have their their own science data. There's all sorts of commitments to collaborate and be uh, transparent in that. But uh, the First Nations leadership has said that they intend to develop the capacity so that monitoring and science efforts are within their capacity and control, as well as um, how enforcement is dealt with. That's great. You answered my next uh, kind of question about enforcement of the Treaty Protective Fishery. Are there currently any discussions with the PEI Fishermen's Association uh, between First Nations and, and that association? Uh, both chiefs, and this is something in the that was reported in the media, so I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, the chiefs did have the opportunity to meet with representatives of the PEI Fishermen's Association. I was, you know, was fortunate to be in the room for that discussion, and without um, disclosing any of the content of the conversation, um, I, I think it's fair to say that it was a very respectful dialogue and both First Nations chiefs have made it clear at that meeting and they've made it clear publicly that it's their intention to keep that line of uh, communication open, um, that they wish to be you know, equally respectful to the non-Indigenous fishermen who base their livelihood on access to the fishery. And I think the messages that the chiefs have delivered around the the community of PEI and their commitment to having that kind of open dialogue in order to continue to support those relationships and build on those relationships, I think is there. So in short, 
yes, the chiefs have met with representatives of the PEI Fishermen's Association already, and they are committed to continuing to share information with that association as their plans evolve. And so what about the provincial government? Uh, what have they had to say about this, and, and what exactly, where do they fit into all of this, I guess? Um, that one's not quite as straightforward because the obviously the fishery is you know hugely important to the economy and the culture of PEI. So the provincial government has a strong interest in the fishery, what happens in the fishery. So the, that's there. However, the province of PEI does not have the uh, legislative authority with respect to the fishery that rests with the federal government. So they've acknowledged that as well. But in PEI, we are fortunate to have seen both the opposition party and the, the, the government uh, make uh, statements in the legislature, which both acknowledged and supported the right. Um, I think it's fair to say that there's all sorts of concern with respect to how the self-regulated fishery will evolve, but the fact that that kind of uh, uh, commitment and pronouncement has already been made, I think is a really good indication that the provincial government wants to work in partnership with the First Nations. So lastly, how can people learn more about treaty rights and, and all of this? If you're interested in learning, there are an abundance of resources out there, but I would be remiss if I didn't put a plug in for the work that Olnaway is doing and, and you and your great colleagues in the communications team. <laughs> so, you know, if people want to learn a bit more about not just the treaty protected fishery, not just the Marshall decision, but, you know, Aboriginal and treaty rights, you know, visit the Olnaway website. There's an abundance of resources there. Follow the Olnaway social media channels and, you know, some of the advertising campaigns that have been happening over the last couple of years, which give some, you know, really, you know, solid but clear, concise, you know, information, I think, that, that people will respond to, you know, those are all contained on the website, you know, encourage people to visit it. Well, I think that's that's pretty much uh, our time for today, Tracy. So, Will Allen, uh, thank you. I, I really appreciate your time today. Will Allen, and thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. And to all those who are listening, stay tuned for our next episode. I'm Sid Nogama, All My Relations. To find out more about Ulnui and the Mi'kmaq rights reconciliation process, visit ulnui.ca.